want to talk to you about the church. But first, let's pray. Father, as we consider what the church is, we pray you would give us insight. We probably have 100 different definitions of what the church is, 100 different ideas of what the church is to be and do. We pray, Father, that you would give us insight now, that your word would guide us, that you would conform our minds, renew our minds according to your word, that we might be in your sight found faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is a church just an old building with a cross on it? Where you maybe go once a week to have a supercharged quiet time? Is it a social club for the religious type? Is it the place where your grandmother always took you, made you feel guilty if you didn't go? Is it a cult? Is it a con, a lie? Is it something that holds itself up to be that's not really? What's the church? What's the church? Raise your hand and tell me what the church is. Yes, nice and loud. A group of believers? Yes? Gospel preach, sacraments are administered, church discipline as well. Yep. Called? Called out. Called out ones, right? Okay. The body of Christ? God's kingdom on earth, right? Good. Uh, I think it is probably more important now than ever that we get this definition right. Because as I heard all of you make introductions, you almost all said you were working in the church, for the church, a part of the church, church planting, something, something according to that. And that all sounds wonderful, but in my years of listening to pastors and watching pastors, we're not all doing the same thing. And I don't think we're all doing the same thing according to the word of God. And so you may decide that my definition of the church or my understanding of the church is wrong. But if you think that, I'd like you to challenge me. Okay? Because I don't want to be wrong. But I'm going to try to challenge you and your definition of the church. I trust I don't need to talk too long about the massive shifts in our culture that's going on. And I'm not just talking about my culture in America, but even your culture. I mean, just this week, your high court passed a law that says same-sex is legal now. It won't be long till same-sex marriage is legal. And if it hasn't hit here yet, the whole transgender movement, do you know what I mean by that, is going to come sweeping in. The church is going to need to answer that. The church is going to need to respond to ongoing abortion. 15 million in India last year. The the church is going to need to address this idea of religious liberty. Is it illegal for Hindus and Muslims to convert? The church needs to have an answer for that. But the temptation for many churches, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, is not to resist false 
things, but to fall into, to simply kind of flow with the culture, to downplay our differences, to fit in, show them that Jesus is not intolerant and homophobic. Don't you feel that pressure? It seems to be in our human nature, maybe our sinful nature, to not want to be different. What should the church's response to these challenges be? Well, you better first get the question, what is the church right? Before you can think you're going to respond to the challenges of the culture. I think if you get that answer right, the rest of it just will fit well. So I want to think through all of Scripture. I want to break it down into six episodes and uh, and then give you four lessons. My hope is that you'll find yourselves amazed and grateful and praising God for the church, the seemingly weak thing that it is. And you can feel quite weak, especially in a place like northern India, I suppose. You're not the majority. You're not popular. You're not embraced by the government. It feels quite weak, but it's not. The story that I want to tell you, I call it Image is Everything. Image is Everything. So let's walk through six episodes. First, we're going to start at the beginning. The first episode is called Creation. In Genesis 1, verse 26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So man is patterned after God. What does that mean? Well, he uniquely mirrors God or he resembles God by design. And being uniquely created in the image of God, humans therefore are then called on to image him, to image his glory to the rest of the world. Man is designed to represent God, to represent God's character. That's from the very beginning. Okay? Episode 1, creation. Man is designed to image God, to represent him on earth. Number 2, the second episode, fall, F-A-L-L, fall. Genesis 3, man decides not to represent God's ways. He sins. He turns away from God. So now man's got a problem. He's guilty. Because he's broken God's law, but he's also now corrupt. He's perverted the image that he's called to bear because of sin. That mirror that is supposed to be a perfect reflection of his maker is now bent. It's broken. We have something in America called carnivals, like festivals, where you, you can go to these mirrors and they're deliberately wavy and curvy, and they distort your image. Are you familiar with these? So I could stand in front of the mirror, and suddenly my neck is this long and my body is this wide. Right? Sin does that. It perverts the image that we're to project of God. That's what the fall brought us. This corrupt nature, this core that is now depraved. Well, episode number three, Israel. Israel, God had a plan in his mercy. 
to both save and use a particular group of people for accomplishing those original purposes of his creation, the display of his glory. In Exodus 4, God calls this group, this nation, his son. I heard some of you, most of you sounded like you had daughters, it seemed, but some of you said you had sons. Uh, you know, God calls this nation a son. How intimate is that for those of you who have sons? Verses 22 and 23 in Exodus 4, why does he say a son? Why would God call this group a son? Anybody? Son inherits the name for the family. Represents the family. Somebody needs to interpret for me. <laughs> Who has a son? Raise your hand. Who has a son? Okay. Does your son look anything like you? Does he look like you? Okay. Who else has a son? Does he look like you? Does he look like you? Does he look like you? I have a son, and people go up to him and say, Are you a schmucker? <laughs> Sons look like their fathers. And that's why God calls Israel his son. Sons look like their fathers. They follow their father's footsteps. I've been told that my son even walks like me. Sons image their fathers. And on the way to the promised land, God takes this son, Israel, to a mountain called Sinai, Exodus 20. And he says a number of things to them. First, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And second, verse 4, he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. What's an idol? An idol is an image. In the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Israel was to keep that first commandment, have no other gods before me, by displaying God's image and glory, which naturally forbids the bowing down to some image or idol. And God warned this son, Israel, that if they were to chase after other images, and failed to display his own glory, that he would do what? He would cast them out of the land, out of the land that he had promised to give them. Was the warning heeded? Did they obey? Because they did what? Moses wasn't even off the mountain and they pop out of a, a fire, a golden calf. They were bowing down to an idol in the presence of the living God. <laughs> they were not displaying God's glory, God's image, God's character. Episode number four, Christ. Listen to Luke 3.22. Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him, and then a voice comes from heaven. He says, this voice you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here is the perfect son with a capital S. 
who perfectly pleases the Father. It's no wonder the writers of the New Testament epistles look back and they they call Jesus the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, they call him the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John 14.9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. (laughs) To see one is to see the other. It's a perfect image. It's a copy. Perfect. Adam's corruption problem in Christ is now solved. And not only that, Jesus paid as the spotless lamb the price for the guilt of our sins when he was nailed to the cross. So the guilt problem is solved in Christ. Now, Episode number five. You said we were going to talk about the church, Mr. Schmucker. Let's talk about the church. Number five, church. And I need volunteers to read scripture for me. I need four volunteers. Who would like to read Romans 8.29? Yes, you'll have to stand and read it loudly. Who would like to read 1 Corinthians 15.49? Yes, 15.49. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Thank you in the back. And Colossians 3, 9 to 10. All right, let's start with Romans 8, 29. Nice and loudly, please. All right. Now, another version would say, that. what was the key word there? The, conform to the likeness or image of his son. Those who he foreknew, those who he was going to redeem, give salvation to, He predestined for you to be conformed to his image. 1 Corinthians 15.49. What's the key word there? Image. We all were born bearing this image of man of dust. And now we're called as Christians to bear the image of the man of heaven. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What's it saying? It's saying, brother, when you became a believer, every day, every week, every year, as you wrap yourself in God's word and renew your mind, you should be being transformed into the one who made you to be a better reflection of God. Imaging him. You should be a better image to, imager today as a mature believer than the day you came to know Christ. Colossians 3, 9-10. Do not lie to one another. That's, that's the old self. You are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of your creator. Now, what's wrong with lying? It's, it's immoral. It hurts relationships, yes. But it, the fundamental problem, so it, when my children were little, and I could tell they were lying, <laughs> I could tell them that that's no-no, that that's bad, 
that that will hurt your relationship with your brother or your sister or your father. Those things are all true. But fundamentally, what is wrong there is that they are not imaging their maker. Why? Because God lies? Never. He only speaks the truth. And when you speak truth, you image him. When you lie, you're imaging somebody else. Huh. When you married men commit adultery, you are not imaging God. That's impure. That is unrighteous. You're called to image the one who made you, who's caused you to be born again. So, what does God call the church to do? Here's your answer. Ready? What is the church called to do and be? We are to display God's character and likeness and image and glory of the Son and the Father in heaven. We are called to display his character, his likeness. We are called to image him, his glory, as he is in heaven. So one of the brothers' answers was, we're, we're an outpost of heaven, the church. We are we're called ambassadors, right? So I was just in the UAE, and my friend had to go to the U.S. consulate, the embassy there, to get a passport for one of his children. So what that means is, is if you want to see what an American looks like, you can go to that, um, that, that consulate and find Americans there. And they should look like Americans and act like Americans and think like Americans. You can get a real taste of what Americans are like in that, that building, that outpost, that, because the ambassador lives there and his employees. Likewise, I should be able to come to the church in Lucknow or Kachwa or Delhi and I should be able to come into your church and I, I can find, even as I go through all kinds of sinful things all the way through, I finally come to your church and I see what Christians look like because I see you representing, imaging your Savior because you're a faithful ambassador. Do you see? What does that mean then? Our Father in heaven is a peacemaker. What does that mean for your church? For you. You're to be called, you're called to peacemaking now. When you are a peacemaker, you're imaging your Father in heaven. Our Father loves his enemies. For if you're in Christ, you were all enemies at one point. You were literally at enmity with him. You opposed his ways. But he loved us. You Christian now, what are you called to do? Hate your enemies? Love your enemies. Pity them. Our Father, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. They are united. You church are to be united. (laughs) Division in the church is ugly. It is not representative of our Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Do you see how bad division is? It does not represent the Godhead. We must do everything we can to put down division and bring about unity. 
And what that probably means, mostly for you men, especially who are pastors and elders, is you need to have the maturity to absorb shock, not make waves. I remember watching my pastor, Mark Dever, when we were early on at the church and trying to turn this church around, this one older woman who had, had, was pretty wealthy, she, um, she was quite old and quite small. She said to Mark that she didn't appreciate all the changes he was making. And she said, you know, I give a lot of money to this church. And her little thing wiggled back and forth like this. I give a lot of money to this church. Now, think of all the things as a young man you might have said in that moment. Pastor Mark, I witnessed it. This is what he said. He said, oh, sister, you don't want a pastor who will bow to that kind of pressure, do you? To that kind of a threat? The woman started to shed tears. She said, no, you're right. He absorbed the shock, the threat, for the sake of unity. And we have the privilege of shepherding her to her grave. The sixth episode, glory. Glory. We will image him most perfectly when we see him perfectly in glory. 1 John 3, 2 says, But we know when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Holy like him. Loving like him. United like him. This verse is not promising that we're going to be gods. It's promising that our souls will shine brightly with his character and his glory like perfect mirrors finally <laughs> reflecting what we're, what we're called to do and be. All right, so here's the, here's the recap of the story. God creates the world and humankind to display his glory. Adam and Eve, who were supposed to image him, failed. The people of Israel failed. But Christ, the Son, he didn't fail. God in Christ came to put God on display. And in Christ, he came to save. And now the church is called to image, to display that character and that glory for the whole universe, testifying both in word and deed to his great wisdom and work of salvation. When you see Brother Harshit and his family... You should see love and tenderness and discipline and service and right authority and provision. Why? Because Brother Harshit, as a Christian, should be displaying the character of God. That's just the character of God on display, right? If you, de- if you see dissension and pride and a host of other sins in Brother Harshit as he's with his family, you should have real doubts about his testimony as to whether or not he's saved. and certainly disqualified as a pastor. When I see his church gather here in Zion, I should see truth spoken and lived out. I should see joy and praise and service and unity and sacrifice and humility. I should see sheep gathered, fed, and protected by faithful shepherds. Why should I see all those things in a true Christian church? Because that's the display of God. That's who God is. If you see something other than that, you're seeing something, someone else on display.
Okay, let me give you four lessons now. God intends to use the corporate life of the local church. God intends to use the corporate life of the local... Do you have this in notes? With Okay, good. So our lives together. God wants to use our lives together to accomplish his creation purposes, to display his wise, holy, and loving image for all the world to see. So you and I cannot demonstrate joy or peace or patience or kindness sitting all by ourselves on an island. We demonstrate it that when the people we have committed to loving loving gives us good reasons not to love them. But we do anyway. See, you, you only see, if I had no children, you would see no patience exercised. When you see me around my children, you see great patience exercised. That's not goodness in me. That's God on display. I am not naturally a patient man. If you see patience in me with my children, it's because that's, you're seeing God on display there. I remember one young woman who was a new convert came to my home, and all my children were young, and they were there at the table with my wife. And afterwards, the children went off and played, and she said, she asked this question, why do your children obey you? Why do they listen to you? I just thought that was the funniest question. But if you've grown up in a home where the children didn't obey and didn't respect authority because exercise was badly used or abused, then that, that, that makes no sense why those children sat and listened and were obedient and responsive. But God, I think, at that moment was on display for that young woman as she saw the right exercise of authority. Yes, discipline. Yes, love. Yes, generosity. Yes, kindness. And it caught her attention. That's a good idea. That, that's what's supposed to happen when the world looks in on us. Lesson number two, the local church is to be marked off from the world. It's to be distinct. It's to be marked off. It's to be distinct. There are, in the last 30 or 40 years, there have been maybe hundreds of books and even more articles written on this idea of we can gain and the key to success in our churches is contextualization. Do you know this term? How, how does the gospel relate to the culture? How it's communicated across language and cultural boundaries? Look, this is not a new problem. This, this idea is, was at the very beginning of the church. How do Jews and Gentiles live in harmony together? How, how, what, what trappings of the Jewish culture should the church shed? It seems in our day that we want nothing more than to show non-Christians that we're really just like them. But that's not the real problem, is it? We actually are too much like them. The real problem is actually to be not like them. To be different. To be distinct. You should be able to look at my life and an unbeliever's life and see something markedly different in our speech, how we spend our money, how we love our families who we fundamentally are serving. Our, our difficulty is to be different. Now, raise your hand if you've heard of this book, and you probably haven't, but The Benedict Option. Good, I'm glad it's kind of unfamiliar to you, but these brothers back here have heard of it. 
It's, um, it's by an American author. Some have labeled it the most important religious book written in the last 10 years. By a man named Rod Dreyer, who is, um, believes that the American culture is declining at such a rate that we're going into a new kind of dark age, a post-Christian age. And he's proposed a new strategy to deal with it, what he calls the Benedict Option. Dreyer argues that the way forward is actually the way back, all the way back to the 6th century, when a, a St. Benedict founded a, um, a monastery. He founded it because of the moral chaos following the fall of Rome. His, his monastery was designed to kind of withstand the onslaught of the world. He, he basically said, let's all kind of go over here and, and separate ourselves from the world so that they might not infect us. It's, it's a way of being distinct. It's to separate yourself, go inside, and stay away from bad influences. Well, Rod Dreyer was raised a Methodist first and then became a Roman Catholic and then became an Eastern Orthodox. So I kind of understand if he doesn't understand the church in some ways. But he's now saying this Benedict option is a a strategy that draws on the authority of Scripture and the wisdom of the ancient church. His goal is to basically embrace an exile from mainstream culture and construct a resilient counterculture. So say, say, you know, like push away, exile from the culture. And I'm listening to this interview that he's doing with a, a, a man, and I just want to yell, Mr. Dreyer, it's the church, it's the church. The church has always been designed to be distinct and separate from the world. It's always been designed to look different. It's why you feel odd. You should feel odd in the world. How do I know it has always been designed? First John, you can find, just First John alone, there's probably eight references to the world. The world, the world, not to be a part of the world. There's an inside and an outside. There's inside the church and outside the church. There's in Christ and outside of Christ. There's the saved and there's the lost. They're to be different. When they get mixed up and your church is indistinct from the world, you've lost the gospel. You've lost your effectiveness to bring the hope of the world, the hope of Christ to the world. How are we doing on time, Harshad? We have time. We have time. My worst day as an adult Christian was in 1993. I was at Capitol Hill Baptist Church since 1991. The man who was the pastor then, not Mark Dever, this is Mark Dever's predecessor, had just, uh, the news just came out that he was unfaithful to his wife. He had committed adultery in very heinous ways, ways that I will not repeat and defile you. That wasn't actually the worst day, though, because I had seen some things in the man's life. I saw pieces of a puzzle, but I couldn't see the whole picture. When we finally got that news, I went, oh, now that makes sense. But that actually gave me hope that day. I was sad for him, but I was concerned for the church under his leadership. So I thought, I started praying immediately, Lord, if you would bring a faithful man here, there could be a good work here. But my worst day was soon after that news hit and it started to spread throughout our neighborhood. I went out the front door of my home. We lived in the city. 
and I was crossing the street to go to a little market to get milk for my children. It was dark out. And I closed the gate behind me, and in front of me, about 10 meters ahead, there were two men, two men that I knew, two young men, two homosexual men who lived on the other side where we lived. And do you know what they were talking about? My church. Did you know what they were saying about my church? They were mocking my church because of the, the adultery that the pastor had committed. Two homosexual men mocking the church of Jesus Christ because of the adultery of the pastor. We were a reverse witness, a reverse display in our own neighborhood. The very reason we were there, we were saying and living the opposite. That was a bad day. Now our church is full People sit in the staircases and in the windowsills. And the gospel is preached there every week and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And new people coming in are interviewed to be sure, to be known that they are, in fact, confessing Christ. And people who are living in ways that do not profess Christ are, are, are called on to repent. And if they fail to repent, they're Membership is removed from them. We want to be a holy, living display of God on the earth. God has honored that desire. Lesson number three. Your evangelism and your outreach and your mission work of your local church is bound up in this distinctness. If you're doing outreach and evangelism in your neighborhood, and yet... Your congregation is living lives as sinful as the world around you. Just stop your evangelism. You're just calling people to come and die. You're inoculating them to what the true gospel is and how they're called to live. But if you are that little outpost, that faithful ambassadorship in your neighborhood, and you are distinct... You are living lives of holiness and repentance and community. Do all the outreach you want because you are now a faithful display. People, people smell the aroma of Christ in you. Or do they smell death? Oh, I pray they smell the aroma of Christ. Lesson number four. The local church finds its life in the proclamation of and the continual rehearsing of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel, we rehearse the gospel. We proclaim the gospel, we rehearse the gospel. And you might think, why do these people keep preaching the gospel in every sermon? Like, we get it, we get it. We don't want to assume anything. And if you're a true Christian, you love hearing that gospel every time. And the unbelievers among you need to hear that gospel every time. So we proclaim and we rehearse, and we proclaim and we rehearse. Don't take your church's understanding of the gospel for granted. That would be a massive mistake. The church is the society of God's sons and daughters. The church is this embassy of Christ's kingdom. The church is where God's image shows up on the big screen of life. The church is where you will find God on earth, Christ in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 You are God's temple. 
and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Do you believe it? I pray it's true for yourselves as individuals. I pray it's true for you men who are pastors and church leaders. For those of you who would like to be pastors and church leaders, I pray this is true. I pray you have a vision for the church as I've just described. Let's pray.